This semester, we've been looking at what the Bible calls the fruit of the Spirit. And the reason why we've been looking at that is because uh, each of us are human beings, I think. The age of androids, not yet upon us, just android phones. And um, each of us are are people, but I think that, um, I would think it's safe to say that everyone in the room would, would rather not just get through their life, but would like to flourish as a human being. And once you start asking, what does it mean for a human being to be a fully human, um, it gets to be a pretty confusing question. But coming from the Bible's perspective, what it means to be fully human, to to reach your potential as a human being, is to be like Jesus. Um, That Jesus was uh, and is um, the the perfect model of humanity. And uh, growing in what it means to be like Jesus means growing in what's called the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And so we're looking, looking at, the, at that fruit, trying to discover what does it look like for me to become like Jesus. And tonight we land on kindness. Um, and I'm hoping that we'll discover that kindness is more than we think that it is. Kindness is one of those weird concepts where... It's kind of hard to define it, because if you start talking about what kindness is, it kind of just sounds like loving someone. But it's one of those concepts that if you see it done, if you see someone being kind, then you get a better sense of what it is. If you try to tell someone what riding a bike was like and they'd never ridden a bike, you're like, it has two wheels. How does it stay up? You know, it doesn't make any sense. People pedal these weird pedals. You say, just come, I'll, I'll, I'll ride a bike and I'll show you how it goes, right? And so what I'm going to do tonight, what I hope to do together, is look at a book in the Old Testament called Ruth. Because Ruth is a beautiful story of what kindness looks like. And it was a little awkward coming to Ruth because Ruth is too short to really just pick a passage from and it's too long to read the whole thing. But I would encourage you to go back. It's in the Old Testament right after Judges and before Samuel. And what I want to do is is sort of take up these four scenes from Ruth and see if we can get an idea of what kindness looks like. Okay? So first thing about kindness that we need to know from this passage is that kindness is getting involved, okay? If you're going to be kind, you have to get involved in the lives of people. You have to commit to people's lives. Now, the book of Ruth is a story basically about two women, Naomi and Ruth, hence the name. Uh, It should be called Naomi and Ruth because that sounds like more of like a, you know, two women action film. Um, (laughs) But Naomi was a woman, and her, her and her husband Elimelech lived in Israel, and there was a famine. So Elimelech, Naomi, and their two sons went off to a country called Moab to try and find some food and be able to survive. And while they were there, their two sons married women from Moab, Moabite women. And, uh, but over time, what happened is that Naomi's husband died, and a short time after that, both of her sons died. So all of a sudden, they had, they had left Israel in a crisis, and now they find themselves in a crisis where it's Naomi and her two daughters-in-law. And uh, if you were a woman back in the uh, ancient Near East, uh, if you didn't have a husband or you didn't have any male relatives, basically what that means, meant was that you were sure to be in poverty, right? You had no sort of trajectory in life to get out of poverty, and crisis, when we, when we enter a moment of crisis, it tends to drive us to what is most familiar to us. Okay? When we get into a crisis moment, we just revert back to what's familiar to us. And so when these three women come to crisis, Naomi decides to go back to Israel, to go back to people she knows, to go back to a land that she knows, go back to what's familiar. And that's where we jump in with our first text here. If you look on your handout, if you don't have a Bible, by the way, and you want one, you can just grab one off the back table. But we're just going to read through this passage as we go. And it's kind of weird for me, so just give me grace. Um, 
Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah, that's one of the daughters-in-law, kissed her mother-in-law. But Ruth clung to her. And Naomi said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. She's saying, go back to where you're from. You'll have a life there. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. When Ruth's husband died, she was still young enough that she could have gone back to to her family. And she probably could have met another man and had children and had a life and a future and a hope for herself. But what she does is she intentionally decides, instead of taking a path that would be pleasant and comfortable for her with a hope, she decides to get involved in the life of her mother-in-law. She says, I'm not going to leave you. And what that means is that, is that Ruth is going to go to Israel and be an outsider. She's going to be a stranger. And her life prospects look pretty bleak, but yet she chose to get involved. She chose to get in the game, really, with Naomi. It's amazing what she says. She says, where you live, I will live. And where you die, I will die. I'm committed to being with you till death. Kindness is being available for people. Kindness is being involved in people's lives. Uh, I saw a beautiful example of this. There's a blogger, her name's Molly Piper. And uh, she, had, a few years ago, she and her husband um, were grieving because they had a stillborn child. Uh, the baby was 39 weeks old, which, you know, a child is typically born at 40 weeks. And um, the, the child died and they delivered the child. And so they were grieving through this. And uh, someone, a friend that they had, who was a single guy, not married, no children, he gave Molly a gift. And because he's a single guy, uh, it was wrapped, it was in a paper, brown paper bag, and her name was scribbled on it with a Sharpie, um, which is thoughtful for a single guy. And uh, she opened, she, after she, he had left their home, she opened the bag, and what in it was, it was a book about stillbirth. And uh, she said, I opened this, the cover to find this inscription. This is a book I recently stumbled across by a woman whose first child was stillborn. It moved me very powerfully, and I wanted to give it to you. We read to know we're not alone, and I hope this book makes you feel less alone. And she said, I could hardly read his words through the thick tears in my eyes. All I could say over and over through my sobbing was, he read the book. He read the book. What was a single guy with no children doing reading a book about stillbirths? Um, I'll tell you what he was doing. She said, he was loving me in one of the most profound ways I've ever I've experienced from a friend since Felicity, their daughter, died. The only reason a single man reads that book is because he's trying to understand the pain of his friend who's a married woman who's lost her child. He read the book. And can you begin to even imagine, if you're here tonight and you are someone that knows Jesus, can you begin to imagine what our campus or, the, or our world would look like if you read the book? If you chose to get involved enough in people's lives to want to understand not only their joys, but also their pains, to get involved in someone's life, to get in the game. I mean, who, if you're here and you're a Christian, there are surely people that you know that you would like to know Jesus. Um, and uh, have you just thought about getting involved in that person's life? Um, enough where you say, wherever you go, I, I want to be there 
with you. Someone told me a while ago, and it stuck with me as a preacher, they, they said, you know, people are very rarely going to remember what you say, but they will always remember whether you love them. They will always remember whether you're involved in their lives. And if you're looking for a life plan, sometimes people sit down with me and they're like, what should I do with my life? And I'm a terrible person to ask that question um, to. Because I would say, if you're looking for a plan for your life, find people and say to them, wherever you live, I want to live there too. And wherever you die, I want to die there too. I want to be involved in your life. Kindness is getting involved. But kindness is getting involved for the good of another person. Okay? Kindness is getting involved. The kindness is getting involved for the good of another. Something that people don't, I don't think, often realize about how God worked in the Old Testament in Israel when he had a people that were a specific sort of socio or a, a specific geopolitical country is that God had tons of laws for his people that would keep people from going into poverty. Okay? It wasn't just to take care of the poor, but to actually prevent people from going into poverty. There was laws like every, every uh, such amount of years, all land that had to be sold would be given back to its owner and stuff like that. But one of the laws was this. Um, this is an agrarian society that grow crops to live. Um, I think that's what the word agrarian means. Um, pretty sure. Uh, <clears throat> but it's one of those words that I throw around. Uh, that I'm not sure that it actually means that. But um, God said, look, if you have a field... And let's say it's a barley field. And you're going to harvest that field. Don't harvest it all the way to the edge. Okay? Leave a border around your field. Okay? And if, you're, and if when you're harvesting, you know, inevitably you drop stuff behind you. Don't go back into the field later and then pick up and clean up all the stuff you dropped. Leave the edge and leave the things in the field so that the poor... And the sojourner, the person that's in the country that doesn't have a home there, can come and they can take that and they can live on that. They can um, make, a sus- make a life for themselves. Um, so when Ruth and Naomi go to Bethlehem, they're poor. They have no prospects, they have no land. And so Ruth goes out to glean. That's what it was called. When you went to that little area and picked up the scraps, it was called gleaning. And she gleans in a, in a field of a guy named Boaz. I'm sure you all wish that was your name. I actually know a couple that they named their kid Boaz. And it's a weird name, but it's a cool name if you read the book, Ruth. Um, Boaz gets involved in the, the lives of these women. Look, look with me in the, in the second part of the passage here. Um, listen to how he works for Ruth and Naomi's good. This is the second passage there, 2.8. Then Boaz said to Ruth, she's out there in the field. He says, listen, my daughter. Do not glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. He's welcoming her. He's saying, you're welcome in my space. I'm glad that you're here. You're welcome to stay here. And then he says, have I not charged the young men not to touch you? Because it would be a very vulnerable place for a single woman that no one knew, especially a foreigner, to be working in a field with a bunch of men, right? And men would often take advantage of these women. So he's protecting her. And he says, look, and when you're thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. He's being generous with her. He's saying, look, other people have drawn this water. And when you're thirsty, you can go drink from that water too. What's mine is yours. And and she falls on her face and says, bowing to the ground. And she said to him, why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I'm a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. And how you left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. 
So how affirming he is to her, like how kind his words are to her. He says, I've heard what you've done, and it's a beautiful thing that you've done, and you've done well. He's, he's so kind and affirming to her. And then he says, um, the Lord repay you for what you've done, and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. He's giving her a hope in God. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoke kindly to your servant, though I'm not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her the roasted grain and she ate till she was satisfied and she had some left over. He's being abundantly generous and kind to her. And this is the part I want you to pay attention to. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men saying, let her glean even among the sheaves and do not reproach her and also pull out some from the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean and do not rebuke her. She's there trying to just sort of scrap together an existence for her and her mother-in-law. And he's telling the guys that are reaping his crop, leave some of it behind on purpose. Pull out the sheaves and leave it so that she can have more than the scraps. In the end, she ends up with six gallons almost of grain for her and for her mother-in-law. He's given her grace. Because what grace is, is something that you didn't earn. Right? When we said that God gives us grace, it means that he gives us something that we didn't earn. And what's more is that Ruth isn't even an Israelite. She's a stranger. She's a foreigner. Um, and Boaz takes her in. And look, if you're here and you're even curious about Jesus, um, Jesus says very clearly to us that how you treat people that are foreigners and strangers, that are down on their luck, that are poor, that are outsiders. He says, however you treat those people, it's how you actually feel about me and how you would treat me if I was in front of you. If you're looking for a great example of that, listen to Kendrick Lamar's How Much a Dollar Cost, by the way. It's a beautiful song. It's also President Obama's top song of 2016, 2015. So, um, <clears throat> sorry. Um, but Jesus says, how, how you treat the stranger, the outcast, is how you treat me. Kindness is welcome, protection, generosity, hopeful speech. It's grace. But here's what you might be thinking at this point. Well, Boaz and Ruth are just nice people, right? I mean, they're just like good people and they're just being nice to others. And most of us tend to think that we are nice people, okay? Nice is the lamest word imaginable to describe a person. Like, ladies, if you went out on a date with a guy and, uh, and your friend said, well, like, I mean, what'd you think about her? And, and he was like, She's nice. Like, you just get a sense that that like, doesn't carry a lot of, of, of meaning, right? Um, kindness is not the same as niceness. It's much more serious than that. Because kindness is getting involved for the good of another at your own cost. If it's not costing you something to work for this person's good, then it's not kindness. Okay, when Boaz is kind to Ruth, Naomi and Ruth realize that he's what's called a kinsman redeemer for them. That means that he's able to buy back all the land that they lost in their family. And if he marries Ruth, um, then he would continue their family line for them, right? Um, So what Ruth does, this is a little awkward. It's not in this, but if you read in in Ruth chapter 3, when Boaz is sleeping, she sneaks into the room where he's sleeping, okay? And she uncovers his feet, which sounds awkward to us. I don't know how that would feel if that would happen to you. Um, but basically what she's saying, she says to him in that moment, she says, you are a redeemer 
spread your wings over me. And what she's asking him is, will you marry me and will you provide a future and a hope for my family? Will you take us from poverty to a future and a hope? And after some political wrangling, he does it. He redeems Ruth and Naomi. But look at the text, the next part of the text, and there in 4.9. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You were witnesses this day that I have brought from the, bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and to Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife. Which means he's, just, he's paid debts necessary for her. To perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. What he's saying there is this. Back in the day, all that mattered is that you had children to perpetuate your family. When he says that the name of the dead might not be cut off, what he's saying is, when I have children with this woman, they will not be my children. They will be the children of her dead husband. I'm continuing his line. Basically what he's saying is, I'm going to give everything, I'm going to pay everything to redeem this woman, and I'm going to get nothing in response, in in return. It is going to be a a losing uh, acquisition for me. Kindness, I don't think we tend to think that kindness is a radical term. But kindness basically means you serve somebody and you lose for them. Jesus in Luke 6 puts it really clear. He says, look, you've got to love your enemies. And what that means is those who want to harm you or those who have harmed you, those are the people you have to love. He says you have to bless those that curse you. That means you have to say good things about people that have said bad things about you. It's just really hard. He says you've got to turn the other cheek when someone hits you. He says be vulnerable even if you've been hurt. He says give someone your shirt when they just stole your coat. He's saying if someone is greedy, continue to give to them. Continue to be generous. And Jesus is saying, look, be kind to people at best when they can offer nothing to you and at worst when they have hurt you. That's who I want you to be kind to because kindness must cost you something or it's not really kindness. And I think if we're honest, like we tend to um, count the cost before we want to get involved in someone's life and work for their good. We think, how is this going to look upon my resume, which is my entire life which I've never even made a resume. Look, look, at, look at us now. Um, and you're like, that's exactly why I'm making a resume. Um, but usually when we serve people, we think, am I still going to be able to get what I want if I serve this person? My family is a Chipotle family. If you know our family, you know that we spend a lot of time in the Chipotle and um, for various reasons. Number one, because it's superior burrito bowl. Um, but two of, I have three daughters. Two of them can have cheese and one can't. Okay. And so when I go pick up Chipotle, I bring it home. I always bring home two little cups of cheese, right? So the cheese isn't all on the food. And I have them on the counter. And my two older daughters always fight to see who can give out the cheese. And it's cloaked in much kindness and service and generosity. Daddy, can I help you with the cheese? Um, or, or serving their sister. Like, Daddy, can I give... Bonnie the cheese, you know, like, can I help? But what's really happening is they're looking at the two cups of cheese to determine which cup has more cheese in it, right? And then when they determine which cup has more cheese in it, that's their cheese, and then they will kindly offer the other cheese to someone else. They're making sure that they take care of themselves first. It looks like kindness, and it is helpful, but honestly, it's just manipulation, right? 
Um, they're manipulating me and one another. Uh, and they think I don't understand, which is... I don't really usually understand. But um, think about your spring break plans or your postgraduate plans, okay? I understand that most of you have like eight different options. I mean, you feel like you don't, but like there are things that you could do. Uh, and most of us pick what will be the most fun or most entertaining and enjoyable thing for me to do, right? Um, but of course, there's always the possibility that something better might come along that you're unaware of at the current moment. And so you don't even commit to the one thing that you think is going to be the most pleasurable for you because you want to be able to back out just in case. And FOMO reigns for the sole reason that we feel like we have to protect our own pleasure. Like, I have to make sure that my pleasure is locked down, and then we can figure out what's going on for there. And my question for you, and for myself, is doesn't that just, like, get old? Like, of all the careful curating of your life and your enjoyment and your pleasure and your comfort... Do you feel yet that you're any closer to arriving at the happy place that you're trying to make for yourself than you were when you started? Um, John Sanderson, who I've, I've taken a lot from in, the, in this sermon, in his book, and I've taken a lot from another dude named Michael Gordon, he says this. Uh, this is, this is, this is going to be, you know, whatever. It's fine. Um, he says, there's a method for gaining our ends in the world. Basically, there's a method for getting the things that we want. Um, it's, we call it prayer. Uh, when we learn to pray, we will not be so prone to manipulation. Um, essentially what God calls us to do by calling us to be kind is he says, why don't you trust me with what's best for you? And then you serve someone else in a costly way. Um, and, uh, if we're honest and if I'm honest, like we really suck at that. Like, I'm not good at, like, putting my own pleasure over here, serve you, and I'll just, you know, let, you know, let God handle the rest. But thankfully, the point of this story is not, okay, go and be like Ruth and Boaz. Let's pray. Okay. There's much more to that. And that's just, the, I want to come down in this last section. Look at the last section on your sheet. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. In case like, you didn't know like, how t- t- you know, functionally things work. Um, <laughs> then, the, then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. I think this is Naomi. I mean, she was old and she had no hope. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They called his name Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. It's a beautiful redemption for Naomi and Ruth, who they were like headed to sure death and poverty, and now they have life and hope in a future. I mean, almost everybody in this room like, feels like they have a future. Um, very few of us are, are, feel like we don't have a future. Naomi, her name means pleasant, the name Naomi. Are there any Naomis in the room? 
be cool if it were. Okay. Um, her name means pleasant, but at the beginning of the book, she told the women she's around her, she said, don't call me Naomi. Call me uh, Mara, because Mara means bitter. And that's who I am now. I'm not pleasant anymore. I'm bitter. And now, because of what Boaz has done, she's re- he is, she is pleasant again. He's redeemed her pleasantness. But did you catch that last little bit? Just the very end. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Because of this act of kindness from Boaz, and because of this act of kindness from Ruth, their little boy had a son named Jesse, and Jesse had a little boy, and his name was David. And he was the smallest and youngest of all of Jesse's sons. And he grew up to be the greatest king in Israel. He was a man after God's own heart. He wrote so many of the most beautiful songs that we've ever had uh, in world history. Um, And from David's line, many generations later, in the town of Bethlehem, which is where this is all happening, a child comes from David in the city of David. And we know from Luke that we should call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Through these basic acts of kindness, choosing to get involved in someone's life, choosing to work for their good, and choosing to do that in a way that costs them something, God was doing an ultimate kindness to the world. Because through simple kindness, God is at work in unseen ways. Um, Jesus came and he got involved. Uh, Jesus became an outsider. In, In Jesus, God left heaven, laid aside all the privileges of being God and being divine, and he became a human being. Um, he, Jesus literally said to us in that act, where you live, I will live. And where you die, I will die. To be with you. Um, and he got involved for the good of another. He touched the sick, the dying, the dead. And he brought healing and new life. Do you feel like you're sick or dying or almost dead? Jesus brings new life. He laughed and ate with the people that we would never text back that we would never even accept the message request on Facebook so that we wouldn't see it. We would keep them on red for 20 years, right? God bless you. <laughs> I'll take that as an amen. Um, that's also why I never sit in the front. Um, Jesus was committed to our good at his cost. Okay, The cost of his own blood, the cost of his own safety, the cost of his own happiness the cost of his own voice, because Jesus is our Redeemer, he paid everything for our future and our health and our life to turn our bitterness into pleasantness. And uh, I I have two very good friends, and um, when they were both in college, um, they were both sort of a a mess, but he was um, walking with Jesus, and she, she wasn't yet. And uh, she went to a party at his house, and she had too much to drink. And uh, she passed out, um, or fell asleep, as we call it. And um, when she woke up, she found herself in this guy who the party was at his house, in his room, in his bed. And you can imagine waking up in that moment, and the, the fearfulness of that, of that moment, of this thinking, like, what, what's happened? Um, but she sits up. And she looks down at the foot of the bed, and sleeping on the floor at the foot of the bed is the guy. And what he had done was he had cared for her, 
when she was vulnerable. Um, he had protected her from, from other drunk friends that wanted to drive her home. And he intended to do good to her by protecting her when she was at her most vulnerable. And it was because of that act of kindness that she was able to glimpse Jesus in a new way for the first time, maybe. And she ended up coming to faith. Um, and they're married, and it's beautiful. And she works in the ministry. Now. Everyone's like, oh my gosh! Um, <laughs> Um, she came to know Jesus because of that simple act. And look, kindness is merely treating people the way that Jesus treats you. But the beautiful thing about it and the hopeful thing about it, about kindness, is that we get to give the world a glimpse of Jesus by committing ourselves to their good at our cost. St. Augustine said this. He said, um, our whole business, brethren, in this life, is to heal the eye of the heart whereby God may be seen. There is an eye in your heart, and it's desperately sick and broken, and it means that you can't see God very well. And when we are kind to one another and kind to the world, we are part of the healing by God's grace. He's at work through that, to bring healing to that eye so that others can see God. And where will you get involved, I guess is my question for you. Like, where are you refusing to get involved that you can just just get in the game? Where will you work for the good of another? And maybe most importantly, what will it cost you to do that? Um, Let's pray. Jesus, uh, we're grateful that um, you who knew no sin became sin so that in you we might become the righteousness of God. You've turned our bitterness Um, our bitter way and our bitter lives into a pleasant way and pleasant lives. And we know that the, the best is even yet to come. And I ask, Lord, that you would help us to taste and see that you're good, that you would give us a glimpse of your kindness to us, that, Lord Jesus, cost you everything. Thank you that you committed to live where we live and to die where we die. Lord, would you help us to see you even for, an, uh, for the first time? in your kindness, and so um, turn our, our face toward the world and be kind to it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.